0: Welcome to the Winged Wheel Podcast. Here to talk all things hockey are your hosts, Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, and Evan Lobsinger. In an anonymous podcast poll, (laughs) who has the most punchable face on the podcast? 66% of the people said Brad. And one said other. (laughs) Uh, I wonder if we put it
1: to the fans what they would say.
0: Oh God, I don't know. They would.
1: It, uh, you'd be a distant third, Evan. Unfortunately, the people love you,
0: and unfortunately for you guys, it wouldn't. It would just be different groups of people who would be voting for each of you because the people who would want to punch Brad are not the same people who would want to punch you. No,
1: no, very different crowds. I will say the people who like will go online and uh, say Brad has a punchable face. They're almost more normal. And I just, I get a lot of like, I don't know. It's very intense hate. Like when it reaches, like we're writing words about how much we hate Ryan for whatever I did that day. It is just so, like such ferocious hate. I'm like, oh
0: my God. They write paragraphs when they want to, the people who want to punch Brad write sentences if they can. For them, it
1: just comes out
0: like any given sentence. Yeah. Although the Evan
1: haters, few and far between though they may be, those ones are...
0: Well, then I get, I I occasionally get roasted on YouTube and I'm like, I didn't even do anything. (laughs) What have I done to upset you? (laughs) Who has the most
1: punchable face on the Winged Wheel podcast? We're going to put it to you, the listeners and the viewers. Even
0: if you're a listener, you've never watched on YouTube. Just answer on who you think has the most punchable face. Sometimes I feel like if you just hear someone's voice, you're like, God, I just, (laughs) I would punch that person right in the face. Doesn't matter what they look like. I've done it. I I've done it. So I don't think I'm immune from being the answer to that question. You know? Yeah. Me neither.
1: Brad, if you had to vote on what you think the results of the poll would be.
2: Oh, this isn't going to be close. Do you think it's,
0: Oh, it's me. Yeah. But Ryan, you talk more than both of us. So that gives you a more opportunity to have a punchable face.
1: That, uh, that's very true. This is potentially the most honest feedback we're ever going
0: to get. Are we asking for it? Not really, but we'll see what happens.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe Jake Wallman was listed in the NHL's version of this. Just, I think, like one or two votes under other. Like Perron being there, I get that one. Jake Wallman?
0: He did the gritty, and Lou Lamorello was like, said to somebody on the Islanders, You have to vote for Jake Wallman. That's actually, you know
1: what? I didn't even, I did not once think about the celebrations. That's a really good point. That's got to piss off some old head in the NHL. Absolutely. Oh, man. There's nothing that unites hockey like hating single players and thinking someone has a punchable face. We said it a long time ago, Nick Cousins being the most hated player in the NHL. That, that rose quickly and justifiably, and it was very funny to see those polls. Not shocking at all that he was number one. No. Oh, we'll see the results of this one. Welcome to the Winged Wheel podcast, folks. Here to talk to you about all things Detroit Red Wings hockey, the world of the NHL, and lots more. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Hanna. I am also Ryan Hanna.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm Evan.
1: Uh, as we get into this episode of the Winged Wheel Podcast, we're going to be talking about Detroit's final game before the All-Star break, which was against Ottawa. You may have slept through it, so we'll fill you in on what happened and mostly what didn't. Uh, we're going to be talking about some small news uh, from across the Red Wings' world. The tradition of the octopus, the the Red Wings and what they took away from January which was the inverse of December as we are now uh, done the first month of the year. More on the more sider defense argument that we raised last episode, and then some early, early, early trade rumors. And then we're going to get into some NHL news headlined by a trade as Lindholm was dealt to Vancouver. I miss the old days when rivals used to not trade with each other. Calgary trading with Vancouver, what's happening in the NHL? We used to be a country. No, I'm kidding. It's actually a really interesting trade. Uh, and then uh, other news from across the NHL. Before all that, I want to let you know that Winged Wheel podcast night at the LCA is happening on Saturday, March 2nd. That is the Detroit Red Wings versus Florida Panthers game. What Winged Wheel Podcast Night at the LCA is, is a partnered event between us and the Detroit Red Wings where your ticket not only gets you into the Detroit Red Wings game, but it also gets you access to a pregame live recording of the Winged Wheel Podcast at Little Caesars Arena. It's going to feature us, the hosts of WWP, but more importantly, Ken Daniels and other special guests on that podcast as well. Your ticket also gives you a special Detroit Red Wings and Winged Wheel Podcast co-branded cap. It is a specially licensed, limited edition. We can't sell them anywhere else. And so uh, you get that ticket. If you're one of the first 400 ticket buyers, you get that hat as well as your entrance into the game of the live show. There's going to be a QA, and a an opportunity for a meet and greet. Evan will sign anything that you want him to. You can buy food and drinks. Uh, your ticket's going to be in a special Winged Wheel podcast seating section. So you're going to be sitting with other listeners. You might also be sitting near us, the hosts. There's uh, lower and upper bowl tickets available. The gondola is sold out. Uh, so again, Saturday, March 2nd against the Florida Panthers, go to wingedwheelpodcast.com slash redwings, or go to the link in the description to get your tickets. Again, only the first 400 get the limited edition Detroit Red Wings and Winged Wheel Podcast cap. All right, last episode, I said the Red Wings, even though they had a phenomenal January, I felt like emotionally and in terms of the vibes they needed to pull out a good result against the Ottawa Senators. Ottawa's had their number this year overall, and especially in big games. We all know what happened last year where Detroit lost twice in a row to Ottawa in a pretty devastating fashion. And it just seems like even though Detroit is having a way, way, way better season, they just don't show up against Ottawa. And as this rivalry grows, at least emotionally, even though Ottawa's not doing anything in the standings, Detroit can't figure them out. I didn't really feel... Like, last night was one of those games where Ottawa dominated Detroit, but it also doesn't feel like Detroit showed up to give it back to Ottawa.
2: Both teams had one foot in the All-Star break before the game started. That was the vibe I got. It was big
1: All-Star break energy. Like, those teams were, not that they were gassed, just like, yeah, they they knew
0: that after this they had nine days off. They did not seem emotionally invested into the game, which is shocking. Well... It's shocking if it wasn't Detroit versus Ottawa, because you'd think with the recent history with those two teams that they would be a little bit more up for the game, but yeah, I've definitely felt some uh, all-star break energy in that game. There were points in the game
1: where absolutely nothing happened, and I mean like partway through, I think it was the third period, like a, a good part into the period, there was one combined shot on goal between the two teams one combined shot on goal. It was a choppy game and choppy, not chippy. Like the the teams couldn't get a break in, they could hardly break out of their own zone. Everything was flopping around in the neutral zone. Just one of those games where it wasn't working out for either team. I think that's probably a good representation of what Ottawa is this season based on their record, and I think Detroit played down to Ottawa a little bit that game. Not that they were
2: terrible, but we've seen Detroit play a lot better. Well, it's a habit of Detroit's to play down to their opponents. So nobody should be surprised. And when you look at the four goals and regulation of that game, I think it's a pretty good summary of how the game went because three of the four were just dumb, lucky goals. Ottawa gets a nice deflection off a nothing play. They get a goal off a guy coming out of a penalty box, gets a breakaway. Uh, Sprong's goal only happened because the Senator's defenseman forgot how to skate. And just kind of fell over and gave Valeno the puck. Who among us. Exactly. The only goal where where something was actually genuinely created was the Larkin tying goal. Yeah. That was it. Like the the other three goals both teams just kind of tripped and fell into. So in the first period about
1: halfway through, as Brad mentioned, a Ottawa player just gifted Detroit the puck along the right hand boards. Joe Valeno picked it up, made a really nice pass to Daniel Sprung who buried it for his 13th of the season. Uh, Ottawa ended up going 2-1 in the uh, second period. The second of those two goals was Brady Kachuk, as Brad mentioned. He was coming out of the penalty box, and uh, most Sider happened to be blowing a tire right at that moment. Terrible luck. Not a, obviously, Sider was not thrilled by it, but it's just one of those things that happens. And If you're a defenseman and you blow a tire, that's like your worst fear that it happens in that moment. Uh, so Kachuk, great finish by him, actually, on the breakaway. And in the third period with... Uh, eight minutes and 45 seconds left, I think it was. So under 10 minutes left, Dylan Larkin circled across the top of the zone and fired through a lot of traffic. It was a perfectly placed shot. It was like the equivalent of a QB throwing across his body uh, and basically saved a point for Detroit. And in overtime, Shane Pinto had like a diving tip to score. Ottawa took the extra point. Uh, Detroit salvaged a point in that game. Didn't really feel like a Detroit gets a point kind of game, but again, neither team was playing that great. So all in all, you're not going to be too upset about it. I maintain what I said. It would have been cool to beat Ottawa and go into the all-star break off a win against a team that you don't really have the best record against, but it's not the end of the world if you're walking away with a point, and Detroit still you know, capped off January with quite a nice points percentage. I think you said, Evan, before the show, top five points percentage.
0: In the NHL, yeah. I think what they finish up with. 20 of 26 points? 20 of 26. So, uh, big picture, how can you really be upset with that, especially given how bleak December sort of left the fan base? Yeah, so would it have been nice to beat Ottawa? Of course, that would have been a great statement game, but the fact that they still salvaged a point and had 20 and 26, I would say mission accomplished for January.
1: Some notable storylines, though few from the game, Larkin. That made 12 games in a row with a point for him, 12 games in a row. And he is playing great hockey. There were some comments that I got yesterday saying, do you think Larkin is carrying this? Yes. Yes. You don't get to what Detroit's been doing in January without Larkin carrying quite a bit. Their captain is their best player right now, not wearing goalie pads. And
2: last night was no different in terms
1: of him saving a point for them. 12 games in a row.
2: Yeah, 100%. This team, again, we've talked about it throughout the entire streak. They haven't been dummying these teams. They haven't been playing their best hockey, but they've been scraping away points. And if you look at the, you know, isolation effects from each game as to why they won those games, you're probably circling Alex Lyon or Dylan Lark in 80% of those moments. Yeah. Uh,
1: Did you see Newsy miming the diving thing and some choice words, but he
2: was... I appreciate that it was over-exaggerated to the point where nobody could misunderstand <laughs> what he was getting at.
0: Strong meme potential. Oh, man.
1: It, it, wasn't the, it wasn't the first accusation of diving that would have been fair for Detroit to make that game. I do think that was one of those plays where Stutzler actually, his, his skate did clip Fishers, but we were talking about it beforehand. Brad, probably not sufficient standard for a penalty.
2: Yeah, I don't think it was a dive. I think Stutzla knew what he was doing when he was taking the path he was taking, in the hopes of drawing. What exactly happened? But yeah, dive probably not. Penalty absolutely not. Yeah, add that
1: add that clip to the repertoire right alongside Newsy saying what the is goaltender interference like he is when he gets animated on the bench. It is top tier.
2: The fact that it was Tim Stutzla though made the online discourse hilarious because yeah. he's getting a bit of a rep for it. Oh, he's had it forever. I think the most fair comment I saw on the matter was listen, I don't know if Tim Stutzla's a diver or not, but ninety percent of the threads I click on that involve diving in the NHL, Tim Stutzla pops up.
1: He's and and that's the that's what you meant, Brad. Like he put himself in that position, so it's not surprising. He knew that he would need the lightest contact to go down and he wouldn't even need to force it. You put yourself in, the, if you're in the air on hockey skates, it's not gonna take a lot to knock you over. So you don't have to play the game too much or at all to understand that.
2: Like it's no different when you're entering the, uh ozone with the puck and on a chip and chase and you kind of skate into the defenseman because you're yeah. you're hoping that he'll grab you or force an interference call yeah you know the play you're making is not productive but you're hoping the other guy does something that will result in a penalty and in this case Stutzler was right because of a bad call but he was right and yeah it's you can call it a dive you can call it gamesmanship probably lies somewhere in the middle
1: I was surprised, though, that they made that penalty call because of the two hooking calls they called on Detroit in the first. First one was Fisher on Kachuk, and the second one was Rasmussen on Pinto. I was like, uh, it just seems weak, man. Like uh, The Rasmussen one was weak. The Fisher one, he was also arguing diving. Like, Not that I'm asking for makeup calls, but if you're a ref and you're going to the room between periods and you see those calls, you might think, eh, not my best. I might have gotten fooled on those. Anyways, well, at least they were consistent throughout the game. <laughs> That was uh, that was Detroit. Oh, we actually got one other nugget of information. Credit to Ken Daniels's investigative reporting. He went to uh, he went to first Daniel Sprong and said, you know, what did Kane get you for for giving up number eighty eight? And he said, that's Patrick Kane's story to tell. And then he reached out to Patrick Kane and he asked him the same thing. And he said, well, that's Daniel Sprong's story to tell. He's like, no, 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 <laughs> Daniel already used that line. You're not allowed to use it. And all Kane would give him was he took him on a really nice shopping spree.
0: <laughs> you imagine those two just going to the mall or something? Like Daniel, you can get whatever you want today.
1: There's a is there a Ferrari
0: dealership in the mall? I don't know. Did he get a
1: Ferrari? Maybe we'll find out if he's a big Lewis Hamilton fan. No, we'll f-
0: we'll
2: find out what it was when we see uh the. I'll buy you whatever you can carry on Mr. Beast's YouTube channel in like a couple days. <laughs> special guest evan lobsinger
0: <laughs> all of a sudden it's like those guys who buy nice cars and all of a sudden they've got like the hat the jacket the gloves it's like all right man like, yeah relax that'll be daniel sprong <laughs> <laughs> like yeah i don't know patrick king got me and he like puts his porsche jacket on his porsche
1: <laughs> hat uh okay let's talk about where detroit is in the standings we mentioned 20 of 26 points we've said it so many times we'll say it again This is the exact month that Detroit needed after how December went, and they finish up going into the all-star break now in the second wildcard spot, not just by points, but by points percentage as well, a 580 points percentage. The closest behind them is Pittsburgh with a 554, and Pittsburgh has four games in hand, but they're seven points back. So Detroit's in that wildcard spot with Toronto right ahead of them, Tampa Bay not too far ahead of them in the third divisional seed. This is now... I think fair to say Detroit's in the driver's seat for a playoff spot. It's it's really far away to be saying that, but they are controlling their own destiny here.
2: Especially when you factor in that for New Jersey and Washington and Pittsburgh, who are hunting down the playoff spot and the Islanders, Philly's the more likely target now, because they're tied with Detroit in games played, but Detroit has two extra points.
1: Which is, yeah, it's important. And that's a team that Detroit beat recently, so that even factors in further. They've gained some ground in that regard. Like they're up on Philly in the third Metro spot. And like you mentioned, Brad, all the Metro teams behind them, it's Detroit's had a lot go their way, but they've also done quite a bit. And like that schedule in January. Yeah. San Jose was soft and yeah, LA was, LA has been terrible. What a fall off for them, but they had, they scraped a point against Edmonton. They beat LA again. They beat Toronto They beat Florida. They lost to Carolina. They beat Tampa. They lost to Dallas. They beat Philly. They beat Vegas. And they lost an OT to Ottawa. Like that, I would say, like they took more points off strong teams than anything else. There wasn't a lot of optimism after December looking at that January schedule at all. There There wasn't wasn't a lot of optimism, period. (laughs) No, no, not especially not after December. So. Someone asked us a question, I think, in overtime last episode, like, what are your new predicted odds for the playoffs for Detroit? And right now, to me, this team is playing like a wild card team. So I'm not saying they're guaranteed to make it, but I think they have as good of a chance as any other of these teams in the wild card mix.
2: I will give them a 51% chance.
1: That is downright, I think, the most optimistic you've been about a Detroit playoff chance,
2: period. In the history of this podcast, yes. And that might even count the years they made the playoffs when we're doing this. <laughs>
1: when you knew they were going in,
0: yeah. Yeah, I'd give them a weighted chance or weighted odds of yes making the playoffs, which... You're such a fence-sitter, man.
2: That's why I said 51%. Like I, It's like a coin flip, but I'll err on the side of they'll do it.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I said they'd finish seventh in the division, so uh, if anyone has to eat this one, it's me, so... I think right now it's just higher than fifty percent, whether they make it or they don't. And I, th- I think they've done everything this month to really put themselves back in the the destiny is in their own hands.
1: Here's where I am on it because you know Brad makes a good point when we talk about this that Detroit hasn't necessarily played game in and game out their best hockey. A lot of that was opportune goals at the right times. A lot of that was, you know, the other team didn't take advantage. And most of that was goaltending finally came through for them when it wasn't coming through previous. But we've also said before, this team was playing way, way better hockey earlier points in the year. And knowing that they could do that still with this same level of goaltending, that's why I think I have faith that these results might still come. And it'll be less on, you know, Alex Lyon, basically saving a game for them, and Dylan Larkin scoring at an opportune time, and more about this whole team starts to use the all-star break to recover a little bit. Patrick Kane's going to be back. They can get some practices in. They they can, you know, whatever's ailing them, whatever injury Larkin's probably been playing with, for example. Moritz Sider can get some rest in because he's been playing the world's hardest minutes in the NHL, quite literally. I think a lot works in their favor for them to be able to preserve this. Even when they come back, they play Vancouver and then they go on a West coast road trip. Yeah. But it's not, I don't know. I I think this is a perfectly timed all star break for them to be able to preserve some of the momentum, at least that they've had.
2: Yeah. Looking at the post all star break schedule, they have a real rough road trip. Although if Calgary keeps selling off, you know, (laughs) one of those games might get a little easier, but uh, Vancouver twice and Edmonton once sucks. But then, you know, the back half of that month, Seattle, St. Louis, the Islanders, Washington, those are all very, very winnable games. Chicago. Chicago's in there too. And obviously the Washington Islanders with the added importance of those are two of the teams that are hopefully still chasing them at the time. It's going to be not, I I, I don't want to say it's
1: going to be not as difficult as January because you never know how it's actually going to shake out. But yeah, Detroit's poised to be able to, to capitalize on something. So we'll see where it goes. Uh, Something I wanted to talk about last episode and and completely missed it, and I know it's just like the most minor thing, but I loved in the Vegas game when that octopus hit the ice. And first of all, I think Ken said calamari for everyone, but Mick said after, you know, traditions don't die. And it's the dumbest thing. I know it is, but whenever the octopus hits the ice, like that hit the ice at the same time when the Lions were still in it in the, the NFC championship and the Super Bowl race and The energy and the spirit in Detroit for sports was so high. And you're like, man, that brings you back to the good old days of, you know, multiple octopi on the ice, every single playoff game, even for regular season games. I hope that tradition never dies. Apparently the Red Wings players were trying to get the, uh, the ice crew worker who came out, she came out and grabbed the octopus to swing it above her head. She wouldn't do it, but they were like, it's all right. We'll, we'll save it for when we make the playoffs. But, man, I missed that so much. Nothing got the crowd going in Detroit like seeing an octopus swinging.
2: Man, that's a big missed opportunity because the next, uh, we'll call it LCA arena worker, to swing one of those over their head is going to be a legend forever. Yes. They might
1: have the octopus named
2: after them. A hundred percent. So, you know, you guys do what you want when you're cleaning up the ice. We're just saying the opportunity is yours. I loved also every time it happened, the opposing
1: team would complain. there would be like, "Flex of octopus goo hit the ice, and it like ruins the ice, and it like hit the goalie." And Gary Bettman would be like, "Yeah, we've we've asked Detroit to stop doing that, so they're no longer allowed." And for a while, uh, Al Sabotka, who we all know doesn't work for the Red Wings anymore, and is currently in litigation against them—that's its own story, but he would like walk off the ice still swinging it and they'd be like, no, seriously, stop. And then he'd go right to the edge of the ice and then swing it. Like, I miss that energy. If they ever say, uh, I think at one point they came out and said, uh, we're banning the, the, the throwing of the octopus on the ice. I'm like, it was never allowed. <laughs> it's always been
0: banned. There was not a rule specifically saying that creatures from the sea could be thrown onto the S- ice.
1: The... Also, there was like old stories. This it used to happen more at the Joe where uh, they would uh, walk out someone, security would walk out someone who threw the octopus on the ice and then just, they would lose them in the concourse, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. Jam-packed concourse back at Joe Louis Arena. It was really easy to lose them that way. Just,
2: yeah, arm on the shoulder. All right, pal, you're getting out of here. Run now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's going to be a lot harder in the
1: LCA, but it is a very, very, very big concourse. So as long as you do a few zigzags, I'm sure you can can bust through security. A
0: couple dips, a couple yeah.
1: dives. Anyways, I, I just got the, uh, that warmed my heart. I miss seeing that. It's been a while. Yeah. You,
2: you do see them from time to time, but. So what you're saying is you're going to throw one next game. <sighs> you know, Matt, from the gondola. Imagine the air.
1: <laughs> You'd have to huck those. I threw one of the jerseys. Bob Kayser gave me a jersey uh, or a t-shirt, I should say, at the uh, Flying Toasters game. And he was like, throw it down there. And you'd be surprised by how much
2: distance you can get because of how high up.
0: One went out. in the penalty box. Did it really? Yeah.
2: Yeah. There, I saw one beaned a small child, which I can definitely <laughs> say was Ryan's. And it was, He did it on purpose. Was it there Hank? was no arc. It was just <laughs> no. a,
0: a straight line.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you had beaned Hank, do you think you'd be walking right now? You no, know, he would have killed me. He would have found you before you left the press box.
1: Did you, uh, did you guys see Tom Brady th- in that big conference room of people throw that football to the rugby players, like running across all the tables? No, no. I didn't. Yeah. Actually. It's a ho- like it, Tom Brady, someone tweeted out there, like whenever Tom Brady sees a football, it's like the green goblin mask talking to him. <laughs> and yeah, he's at this co- in this conference room. He launched some company, I don't know. And, uh, he hit some rugby player running across the room, like through the, the, the dining room tables that everyone was sitting at in stride, like perfect throw. And I'm like, that's exactly what I want to do with that t-shirt. Just like <laughs> whip it down on someone. Anyways. All right. Let's get to some real uh, content here. The Most Sider speech conversation that we did last episode where it was the, the in defense of Mo Sider. It's caught on and and people are now starting to understand and as more and more uh, things get released, like Most Sider is genuinely playing some of the toughest minutes the NHL has seen. Not just this season, but for a long, long, long time. Prashant Iyer did some uh, more statistical research and found that number one defensemen just flat out don't play the kind of defensive zone starts that most Sider plays. Like he is, it, it's not been since I think 2007 or 2008 that players have played more defensive zone starts than him in and around there. Kale McCarr, he's on the opposite end of the chart in terms of the defensive versus offensive zone starts he gets. Evan Bouchard, Quinn Hughes, etc. And it's not to say that those players are being artificially inflated. No, you have to be a good offensive player, and you're, you're going to get like, be able to take advantage of those offensive zone starts, sure. But Moe Sider is disproportionately playing, starting in the defensive zone against the other team's best players. Like, You just don't make it down the ice to contribute offensively that way. And as the conversation has gone on and as more people look up uh, more of these analytics quality their teammates quality of competition defensive versus offenses on starts it's like yeah it's not just this season it's in the past 15 years most either are tops or is near the top of most of those charts in terms of the hardest combination
2: of all of those things it's good to know that the analytics community said we were right <laughs> us specifically yeah right the first time for everything
0: that's true
1: in all seriousness though like uh, I think it was Dom Lutishan says uh, or, or found some charts. The average offensive rating of forwards face, and I'm not going to get into like the, the very specifics of his model, but uh, the in terms of the way Dom's rating, you know, quantifies it, Moritz Sider leads the league at 3.3, and the next closest is Aaron Eckblad at 2.4, and then 2.1, 2.0. You can understand it like Moritz Sider's leaps and bounds ahead in terms of the average offensive capability of the the forwards facing him every time he steps on the ice. And then the average pretty much aptitude of Sider's uh, teammates, the only defenseman who has a lower rating or whose partners have a lower rating than Sider's are Rasmus Dalins. and Buffalo's not doing too hot this year. So it's a little unsurprising, but he's out there. He's asked to be God's toughest soldier with
2: absolutely nothing to work with. He is getting the hardest deployment with almost no help is what the numbers are saying. And while I do think that sells Jake Walman a little short, it probably does factor in the forwards that are on the ice with him at any given moment. Which, as we've talked about, if it's not Larkin's line, and up until very recently, Andrew Kopp's line, they are not going to get much help inside their own blue line. And, you know, the points being made, while he's not thriving in that role, which is fair maybe other defensemen would do better, but nobody's saying most Sider should be sitting here winning a Norris, saying he's an upper-tier defenseman in the NHL, and based on his results versus quality competition versus how much help he's getting versus his deployment, I think you can make a very coherent case that, at worst, he's a top-20 defenseman in the league.
1: I really liked in Sean Shapiro's article, uh, Sider, he talked to Sider himself about this, and it should come as no surprise, but Sider has a, like a really thorough understanding of exactly the situation he's in. The Red Wings, of course, do. Derek Lalonde does. But Sider gets into like what it means to win a shift, and it doesn't always quantifiably come up on the score sheet. It means you started in your defensive zone and you got the puck out with control in the limited time that you have on the ice. Like That is what it means to win a shift. And he knows it doesn't always show well with metrics, and he knows it's not always going to be as fun or you might not have as much energy as at the end as you might have in the offensive zone. But that's the job he's out there to do. I fully agree with you, Brad. Like There's a really good argument that that cider's
2: in that top 20 and even higher. Well, it's the beauty of this discourse and the analytics coming is they're even saying there's no real way to prove this. Everybody is stating, yeah, we don't think our model does enough to quantify the extreme outlier that Mo Cider is this year with his deployment and that is good and bad because one, it leaves a lot of room for discourse. And two, it leaves a lot of room for discourse. So, all right, that's enough. I'll, I'll get back on my, we'll
1: get back on our soapbox about Mo Cider when the next person dares insinuate that he's, you know, all of a sudden fallen off or anything. Until then, Red Wings trade rumors. It's going to start the trade deadlines, not, you know, it's next month. And so the, that whole process is going to come through and I mean, if the Red Wings are in a wild card position and they could potentially add for not too much, or they can make some moves to reconfigure things where, yeah, they might have to sell some valuable pieces, but you also look towards the medium and long-term as well. This is, we're getting to the territory where Detroit could be buying pieces here. Uh, two names that Detroit's already been linked to are Jacob Chikrin and Frank Vitrano. I wanna uh, caution this by saying it's just like very early stuff that's floating around. Everyone's going to be linked to good players who are on the market, but those are two pretty interesting names. Chikorin, we all know uh, out of Ottawa, if he's potentially available, which I don't know, players can say a lot of things until he actually is signed there long-term, then you think he might be available. And then Vetrano, the uh, left shot winger from Anaheim, also a viable offensive candidate. Thoughts on either of those and just the concept of Detroit? adding at the deadline
2: before anybody does anything this time of year. I need to preface this by saying the number one thing that you need to look at is the contract. Yeah. So a lot of Red Wings fans are bringing up, were bringing up Hannafin and Lindholm as potential targets for Detroit because they filled direct needs and it makes a lot of sense. But the reason you look at the contract first is they're both pending UFAs. And obviously Lindholm has since been traded, but the Red Wings shouldn't have any interest, even though they are, we'll say, more likely to make a playoff spot than not as of this moment. Now, the interesting thing about Chikrin and Vetrano specifically is they are not pending UFAs. So now you're having the argument of what is Detroit's timeline? Would I go all in on Jacob Chikrin right now for Detroit? He's only got one year left after this one. I don't think that's going to be in Detroit's cup window. I don't think they're contenders next year. Even if they make the playoffs in both years, I'm not comfortable giving up two premium assets. Let's call it a first round and a good prospect. Hypothetically for Jacob Chikrin. They're not in that position now. Frank Vetrano has one year left as well, but I think he would come much cheaper. And he, in my mind, solves a bigger problem on Detroit because you look at our defense Nobody's fooling anybody. We know it's bad, but there's not a lot of wiggle room, but there's a lot of defensive prospects in the system. This team is scoring a lot of goals this year, not because they're creating a lot of offense, but because they're carrying a high shooting percentage and a good power play. Frank Vitrano scores goals. That's all he does is he scores goals and we don't even know if Daniel Sprong will be back next year. So you can get a guy who's in the all-star game on pace for 30-something goals, I believe, this year, making $3.6 million for another year after this. That feels like a worthwhile investment to me, especially since he doesn't have the track record of a Jacob Chikrin. The cost is likely lower. Again, do I love the idea of getting someone with only one year left on their contract after this? No, it's not ideal. But I also understand... You got to keep hitting the gas and guys with term very rarely hit the market. At least guys with term that are worthwhile trading for very rarely hit the market. So if you can get an extra year, you're generally doing okay. So I don't hate the idea as with everything, cost is everything. And we already have a pretty good idea what Jacob Chickren's cost would be because Ottawa just paid it and it's Alex situation two it situation 2.0. I, I don't know if I'm there yet.
1: I'm going to. I'll get to the contract length thing in a second because I think we disagree fundamentally on this. And it might be because I'm naive. But first on Frank Vitrano, I do agree that adding him, even though Detroit is scoring a lot of goals, that doesn't mean you stop trying to add offense. It's not We're not far removed from seeing a Detroit team that couldn't score goals. When they shoot at a high shooting percentage and the power play is doing well, I don't knock that. I, I don't think that's uh, all luck. I'm not the kind of person who subscribes to... That's always going to automatically regress the moment you notice it. No, maybe they're just a good shooting team this year. They've added shooting talent. Sprong is an incredibly efficient scorer, et cetera, et cetera. But you, you don't have to look too far into the future of this team to understand why adding more shooting talent helps. You're right. What if Sprong doesn't stay? And if he stays and you have another version of that, amazing. Peron is still effective, but he is getting older, and you can notice it in his game. And he's also on an expiring contract. Maybe he's someone you can deal with because a a cup competitive team wants to pay a premium. Or maybe you keep him until he's, you know, not viable in your top six anymore, and then you have someone to plug and play there. It never hurts to be able to score more goals. What if Beargren's not long for this team? You're going to want to have some kind of offense. They're not even close to the same age. If 29, he'll be 30 this uh, next month, I believe. But it it never hurts to add that offense. And I agree he might come cheaper unless a team kind of overpays at the deadline. With Chikrin, though, here's where I disagree. I know sign and trades are exceedingly rare. We've seen very few of them, and all of them have come in like the last little while. Also, it's not
2: possible in this scenario. It's not
1: possible in this scenario. But even when a guy, I'm saying, even when a guy has like one year left on his deal, we all know the agents talk to the teams. Like they, we would, all, never, they would never, they wouldn't. They would never. no, that'd be tampering. Sometimes teams give the agents permission. Sometimes it's funny how the GMs always, you know, pay the premium for the guy with, on an expiring deal, and then all of a sudden he extends. It doesn't happen every time, but GMs generally have a sense. And so for me, it's like, I'm not horrified of trading for a guy on an expiring contract, but it would have to come with the caveat that, you know, through that way where you would never tamper, never, but you, let's say you just had an intuition and it, it was like a voice from the heavens or a text on your phone from someone's agent or either one of those things that said, yeah, Chikrin would extend here when he was eligible to do so. That's when I I don't mind paying the premium. And if you look at Chikrin, he can play on both sides of defense and you, you look at Detroit's defenses here, I just don't see how that wouldn't be worth it. I, I don't, like, unless you're overpaying by a ton, in which case, yeah, sure, let's not do it. But he's an established player who's a good player who would be an improvement for Detroit's defense. I don't mind a little bit of an overpay. I actually, the only reason I don't think it's happening is because I don't think
2: Ottawa will do that with Detroit again. Yeah, that's the thing too. Trading with Anaheim out of conference, which, oh, by the way, Pat Verbeek is their GM, a good buddy of Steve Iserman. But I, I agree with you because Chikrin should be the premium target here. But without that contract extension, all but you know, guaranteed wink, wink, nudge, nudge, you're just in the Ottawa Alex Debrinket situation where they took a swing on a guy who had a little bit of term left. He said, I'm not staying here. And they got screwed. Now, they got lucky that he had the extra year, so they were able to trade him for a bit of a return still. And the Red Wings are at their point in the rebuild. Like, I can't emphasize how little I care about draft picks right now outside of maybe first rounders. That's what I'm saying. If if you want to give up picks for an established player and you can extend Chikrin at a reasonable deal for another seven, eight years, fantastic. You should do that 100 out of 100 times. But it's always worth repeating. Those are very friggin' rare in the NHL. Very, very rare. Now, there have been more instances of a guy comes to a team and, you know, spends a year with the team and goes, you know what? I don't hate it here. Yeah, let's extend. And that'd be great. Maybe the Red Wings are feeling frisky and they do both. Because, again, getting to your first point uh, about, yeah, the Red Wings have a good power play and they've they've added high-quality shooters. So, no wonder their power play percentage and shooting percentage went up. Historically, we have seen... What they're doing now is not sustainable. So many teams in the past who have been on, you know, special team and shooting percentage heaters have had more shooting talent than Detroit is right now. Like, it's not like they went out and added Miko Ranton and Austin Matthews. They are, they are due to regress. Could that happen after the playoffs? Could they go all the way to the conference final on this bender? Sure. We've seen it happen before, but it always fades out. That could be later this year. That could be at some point next season. So I'm not going to say don't add forwards and don't make it a priority just because you're running hot this year. Yeah, fully agree.
1: Not that I'm comparing these teams to Detroit, but you never see a good cup competitive team say, yeah, we don't want to get better. Let's just see if this is good enough. They're always trying to get better. The The complication here is that we're talking about, by and large, we're talking about pieces that can make Detroit continually viable in the short term as a good team, which is kind of the approach that Steve Eisman has taken to get Detroit to this point. You still have to balance the long-term aspect. You still have to get some of the prospects into the the lineup. It's not going to be all of your forward prospects, but hopefully one or two make a push next year. It's not going to be all your defensive prospects, but I hope I, I I would be shocked. Like I I just wouldn't even have words anymore if we don't see Edvinson full-time in Detroit next year. And then you have to start thinking about guys like Albert Johansson and others.
0: Axel Sandin Pelica making a move over to North America.
1: There's, there's a lot on the horizon and it's going to be about those guys doing it, you know, making a case for the NHL and you don't want to box them out is when they, when they get here is what I'm saying. And I think we're already seeing that with Edvinson Detroit's made some mistakes with previous free agent signings, and now Edmondson's not up, and I, I think that sucks. I think the the team and Edmondson would be better off if he was up, but that's the risk you take. So it's a, it's a delicate balance. It's almost a harder job that Eiserman is in now than either a full seller or f- full buyer in terms of Stanley Cup competitive teams. Okay, let's get into news from across the NHL. How about that Lindholm trade between calgary and vancouver so calgary obviously they're just kind of throwing in the towel the everything that they've been trying to do hasn't been working and that team needs some kind of reset so uh, elias lindholm has been a player who's been rumored to be on the block for a while and vancouver in exchange for lindholm gave up andre kuzmenko yanni yermo hunter Rustevitz, a 2024 first in a conditional it's almost like a meme 2024 fourth round pick There's always a fourth round pick. That's what seals it. That's what makes it the overpay. Every time. And it's
2: always conditional too, for some reason. Yeah. I think it goes up to a third if Vancouver makes uh, it to the conference final. Correct. Yeah. And that will definitely be what makes or breaks this trade. thousand percent.
1: Hey, Until that third round pick is, you know, the next Braden Point or whatever it is, then we'll see who's laughing. But uh, thoughts overall on the trade. You mentioned that you thought Vancouver paid a heavy price here
2: yeah this feels like an overpay for a rental and we alluded to it with detroit but if like you know you can only ride a shooting percentage bender or a pdo bender for so long vancouver's rewriting the narrative on pdo benders this year don't get me wrong they're a good team with good players but they're riding an insanely high shooting percentage with insanely hot goaltending so you wonder how sustainable it is and You made a good point about, yeah, but look at how Vancouver's constructed. Are they ever going to get a better chance than this? To which you could very well be right. And Elias Lindholm's, Elias Lindholm, having Elias Pedersen and Elias Lindholm on (laughs) the same team is going to be annoying. I'll
1: never get it right, dude.
2: Yeah. Elias Lindholm will likely help either keep up that PDO bender or... When it regresses, the positive difference he breaks kind of balances it out and keeps Vancouver near the top. They've talked about extending him. And, you know, in terms of Red Wings contract talks in the offseason, I expressed how signing a guy like Elias Lindholm to an eight year contract when he's almost 30 would be a bad idea. So, they don't, Vancouver might almost be better off if he doesn't extend, but that's a whole nother conversation. But for all intents and purposes, they traded for a rental right now. A very good rental, don't get me wrong. But they gave up a first-round pick, albeit a late first. A prospect who they originally selected in the third round, but has been so good since they picked him that he probably goes late first in a redraft. Another half-decent prospect, and of course, the big piece, a conditional fourth. (laughs) That's a lot for a rental. Even when you look historically what players of Elias Lindholm's caliber go for at the deadline... It's not this much. The way I can reconcile this, if I'm GM of the Canucks though, you have limited chance and they got it done early. They probably paid a premium to not let him quote unquote hit the market when it really heats up right before the trade deadline. Yeah,
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a little bit for sure, but it, it almost harks back to the conversation we just had about the Red Wings where... At some point, if you can get an established player that can help you in whatever situation you're in, then trading prospects and trading picks isn't, I think we overinflate the value of them. There's a good argument to be made that Bristevitz was traded at the height of his value. How many times have we seen prospects peak in value and then taper off? Imagine how much Bergen would have been worth, you know, Last year, for example, imagine how much Soderblom would have been worth in a hypothetical trade when he made Detroit out of camp versus right now where he would get next to nothing. Like it's not completely – I think there's, there's something to be said about using your assets to overpay to get someone who's established and good. Also, they offloaded Kuzmenko and that's a funny one to me because that was a benefit to them because of the salary that Kuzmenko has. Like Vancouver actually created salary cap space here. And Kuzmenko is ostensibly a good player, but under Rick Tockett just wasn't able to play the kind of game that made him good. And you might say, oh, why are they stifling him? Well, Rick Tockett asked players to forecheck and play defense and, you know, just work hard and just didn't vibe with uh, with what Kuzmenko was used to, which is just go out there, have good vibes and
2: and have fun, which is what Bruce gave him. Uh, your one point you made there, I did actually wonder about with uh, Bruce Devich trading him at the height of his powers. Because I don't know if it's a coincidence, but Kitchener's hit their first cold streak of the season in the last two weeks. You know, Kitchener's been a wagon all year, and they have about three, uh, about a four game losing streak going, and Bruce Devich is gone. So there could be something to that where. Hey, his value is never going to be higher. He kind of came out of nowhere for a third round pick. He's massively overperforming expectations. And again, we talk about it. Statistically speaking, prospects don't hit their ceilings M- way more often than not. They don't become what you hope they will. Yep. And, you know, we, I know it sounds so dumb to say, considering we've sat here for the last seven years, pick some prospects, pick some prospects, pick some prospects, pick some prospects, but it's true that we talked about the Red Wings need a million of them because most of them don't hit. You yep. need a thousand darts at the dartboard to rebuild because you're only going to hit on like 12 of them. And that's why I don't hate this for Vancouver. The reason I feel like it's an overpay is because, again, just historically, this isn't, this isn't what these guys have cost at the deadline.
1: There's a version of the NHL where a GM employs a strategy, like a trade strategy, and I think this is a thousand years from now because teams are too conservative and the NHL is so slow to change, but they employ a strategy where they utilize their prospects way earlier. They trade them really early. They take a lot of risks in who they trade in terms of prospects where unless they're like absolute golden ticket prospects, anyone is on the table to try to move To stay competitive in a window for guys who are, you know, between 26 and 31 years old, say, who you know can compete for you this year and make a difference for you this year. It'd be a buck wild way of doing it and you'd make a lot of mistakes, but you can win yourself a lot of games or playoff games by doing it that way.
2: You know, what's funny. There's a trade that actually comes to mind where you can line the pieces up. Uh, most of the pieces of the trade pretty clearly to kind of get back to my point about how you can get more value for the package they gave up. So you have a late first round pick. Mm-hmm. You've got a beer, uh, a B tier defensive prospect. Beer tier. Beer tier. That's oh my the, God, that's that's the that's, one we play in. That's a terrible yeah. trade. <laughs> yeah. You got your beer league defenseman. You've got your one dimensional European forward mm-hmm. and then, you know, a conditional fourth. And I know Vancouver got one extra piece out of this. Late first, Donovan Sabrango, Dominic Kubelik, and the <laughs> mid-round pick. This is damn near what the Red Wings gave up for Debrinkit with an extension. It's it's almost boring how
1: standard that is.
2: Yeah. But again, for a rental versus the Red Wings are getting five years of Alex Debrinkit or yeah. four years of Alex Debrinkit. Yeah. I will say for for the criticisms of the way
1: free agency at times has gone with Eisenman through and through, the, the trades have been fantastic. The, the trades from day one, I think, have been exceptionally beneficial for Detroit. Anyways, is it am I crazy? Is it weird to see Calgary and Vancouver willingly deal with each other
2: like that? This is the second time this year. I know, and it's, it's just like, are don't you? Aren't you guys supposed
0: to like have a? They're both desperate, but for opposite reasons. Vancouver's wondering if they actually have a true window here and they're buying, buying, buying. And Calgary's like, well, we should just sell everyone if we can.
2: They're setting precedents for rivals to trade multiple times within division this year. So this helps our theory that the Red Wings might get Chicken. And you know what? <laughs> it's a brand new GM in Ottawa. So really, it'd just be like the first time. That's a terrific point.
1: It's, we should almost be thankful that Debrinket isn't doing like a. 50-goal 60-goal season right now. Otherwise, Ottawa would feel gross about that trade Then they'd never want to do it. Now, when Eisenman calls, they'll feel okay about picking up the phone.
2: I mean, that Bruins pick's going to be very late in the first round, and they've healthy scratched Kubelik a few times lately, yeah. but
1: we're... it's <laughs> Details, right? Don't, don't get into all those details. <laughs> all right. Uh, speaking of potential trades, Capo Caco's on the market. There's not a lot to be said here. He's had a, an atrocious season, but... Uh, <sighs> The whole New York thing with Lafreniere and how he's panned out, and now Caco, who's like, they're ready to give him away. What a train wreck!
2: Yeah, I'm normally a huge fan of reclamation projects. Like, seems more, too far gone. More teams should be doing these, and not, especially considering how many success stories there have been around the NHL lately in this near exact scenario. But yeah, he hasn't shown anything, like anything. <laughs>
1: I, yeah, I, I'm not even saying this for a Detroit aspect. Like, it's just... It's crazy. The way... in New York is still... Like, if you said when they got Lafreniere and Kako, not too far apart from each other, and you, you looked a New York Rangers fan in the eye and said, hey, neither of these guys are going to pan out to be first or second overall pick quality. They are not going to be game breakers, generational talents, franchise talents, or anything even close. They're not going to be superstars. They're going to be busts per their position. The Rangers fan would think, "Oh God, this team's going to suck. This, this team's going to be in despair." They could be. They could be the, the Eastern Conference representative in the Cup final still. Like New York is still there.
0: They're doing it in spite of them.
1: Well, Lafreniere's having a good year. Yeah, he is. He is yeah, but he's yeah. not first overall. He's not what we thought Alexi Lafreniere should be. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Very true. Anyhow,
1: uh, and other young players who are in some controversy, David Yerchek out of Columbus. Oh God, that. (laughs) Wow.
0: Those quotes were for a league where players say nothing. Yeah. And his agent is Alan Walsh. Yeah. Who said nothing that, that those quotes are like just bombs. He said he like,
1: he was sent down to AHL Cleveland and he essentially blasted the blue jackets and said, I'm good enough to be in the NHL. I know I'm good enough to be in the NHL. He named his counterparts, his contemporaries, in terms of young defensive uh, presumptive stars in the future, that he's like, they're playing in the NHL. They've been given the opportunity on the power play, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, I know if I had that opportunity, I'd be able to do it. And it's just, they asked him, like the the Blue Jackets were worried that he wouldn't even report when he was sent down to the AHL. Like that is.
0: Why would you even risk that?
1: They told him. To get a place in Columbus. Man. And then they sent him down later in the year. Like that is, I understand they they want to build a, a, a culture of accountability and everyone earns their spot, et cetera, et cetera. But things have gone from meh to bad, to worse, to terrible, to, oh God, we have to hit the big red button in Columbus. And it seems to only be going downwards.
0: If your ownership and after, Everyone should have been fired after the Mike Babcock thing. Yeah. Everyone should have been fired right? Then and there, the writing was on the wall, and they just continued to let this snowball roll down the hill. I mean, I don't cry for other teams and their fan bases and their organization like here's the world's smallest violin. <laughs> but man, that like those quotes and just the whole body of work over for Columbus this season is just makes them look like the biggest garbage franchise.
2: Everything adding up over and over and over again. And the seeming just obliviousness to who they are and where they're at. This is a team right smack dab in the middle of a rebuild. They're awful. They've been awful. People knew they were going to be awful. They're building to the future. One, I think this is going to be one of the most aggressive, uh, what do you want to call it? Mass exoduses of a front office slash coaching staff in an off season they, this, if I'm this owner, I'm firing everybody and starting from the ground up coaching staff, gone GM, gone. Any of the GM's cronies in the front office, gone. This has went from a promising franchise to the most toxic in almost no time flat. You know, they healthy scratch, Kent Johnson, one of their star forwards of the future early in the season, you're check. They're sending down. And again, this isn't, like the Dallas Stars where Logan Stankovan has to unfairly sit in the AHL all year because they're a really damn good team. Yeah. And there's no legitimately no spots available. This team sucks. There's no argument that can be made for year check, not being a top six defenseman on this team. If he is not listening to the coach and he's pinching too much or he's not. I wouldn't listen to their coach either though. No, nobody is that he's lost the room. Like that is definitive. Even if you look at how poor of a season Johnny Goudreau's having, you can't tell me that's a coincidence. Patrick line is on leave to, you know, take care of his mental health, which we hope he does. And we hope he's well, but like, you can't tell me that this situation didn't have anything to do with it. But if, if your check's not listening to the coach and he wants to send a message, sit him for a game or two. He doesn't have to go to the HL to get the message. That was the old Jeff. Splash Special. You're going to the press box for a game. And whether you agreed with it or not at the time, usually it was message received. And if you can't sit a guy to get a message through in your organization, your organization is broken.
0: Now, I wonder if it's one of the situations where they just need to get him out of Columbus to shelter him from the shit show that is that is occurring. I That seems way too advanced thought yeah. for the Columbus organization. But maybe they made a mistake and are doing it in spite of themselves.
1: They could be accidentally doing the right thing here.
0: Yes. They failed successfully.
1: Although, hey, Philly said that to Cutter Goche, and now he plays for Anaheim. So <laughs> it's,
2: like, <laughs> I, it is, it's also hilarious that this is like, hold on, let's just manifest this. They did it to Juracek and now he plays for Detroit.
0: Say it a few times. Yeah, yeah, let's, they did a to your check. Yeah, yeah. Let's not even go there. <laughs> what, I would die. What are we, the if best not dreamers? Kind of, the best kind of death.
1: To watch all those defensive prospects go when they did and Detroit being lower than, than where those positions were going to be taken on the draft board and to eventually
2: get one of them would be a nice little stroke of luck in the face of never winning a draft lottery. Yes. All those Edvinson versus Juracek conversations. Imagine if that's just our second pairing.
1: That's right. Yeah. Which one of them is doing better in this game for the Red Wings? (laughs) We're dreamers on this show, man. That's all we are. Okay. Uh, I'll save the other news stories because the All-Star break is going to be a bit quiet, including the All-Star teams, which are drafted as we were recording. I heard that was... A little bit of an awkward affair on TV, so.
2: I, am I for one, am shocked. Yeah. Can't believe that would ever happen on the NHL's
1: watch. Anyhow, uh, we're going to save that. Also, in upcoming episodes of the Winged Wheel podcast, uh, over the break, we've prepared for you two really fun interviews. Uh, Evan and I, you'll know it's fun because it was just Evan and I on the interviews. Brad wasn't there, but uh, with two uh, people who,
0: they were pretty... uh, Fan favorites.
1: We were we were going in knowing they'd be good interviews, but we said to each other after both of them, like those, that was awesome. Good it, guy, good guy awards. Yeah, a lot of fun. Anyhow, so that will be on the upcoming episodes of the Winged Wheel podcast. For now, let's jump into overtime. Overtime is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Podcast if you want to support the show. Uh, Guys, this is exactly how we do everything is through our Patreon supporters. Winged Wheel Podcast Nights in partnership with the Detroit Red Wings and Grand Rapids Griffins. It's how we produce Expected by Whom, a show... uh, hosted by Sean Shapiro and Prashanth Iyer. It's how we support the Jamie Daniels Foundation and everything in between. Uh, You get benefits like access to our Patreon exclusive Discord. You're automatically entered into all of our giveaways. Uh, For example, primarily, we give away two tickets to every Detroit Red Wings home game, the vast majority going directly to our Patreon supporters. Additionally, you get access to all of our bonus overtime uh, episodes and any additional bonus content that we put out. Uh, We put out a bonus overtime episode uh, after every main show. They're a lot of fun. So again, patreon.com slash winged podcast if you want to support the show. Red Feather Desert Dog says if Brad Crisco, Ryan Hanna, Mika Crisco, and Evan Lobsinger were getting drafted by NHL All Star teams on Thursday, in what order would they be selected? Mika'd go first. She'd make sure she was picked first. That yep. girl can advocate for herself. 100%. Ryan would be picked last. 100% would be picked last. I am the most out of hockey shape out of the three of us. And. Evan would be picked the first of us three guaranteed. Are you okay?
2: (laughs) Yeah. See, that is a hockey player right there. He's good. Well, I would say given that this is an all-star setting and not actual hockey setting, I think I go second just because forward versus defense. No. I think that plays in my favor. Evan has a
1: hockey guy look to him,
2: man. If we're talking actual hockey and not just entertainment value, Evan's definitely going second.
0: There'd probably be one captain who's like a weird nerd and is like, all right, this is the structure our team's going to play and we really need to take a defenseman early. Like apparently two goalies got taken. Yeah, if If
2: McDavid's picking second, Evan's going before us for sure.
0: We're building from the back end out. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yeah I there's zero chance I get picked anything but last there
0: I would also be the most inebriated so we'll see oh
1: then you might get the car you might advocate to get taken last
0: oh there we go you pull the Ovi a new car in this economy hell yeah you do have a Phil Kessel physique
1: yes I do (laughs) and I'm talking about the hot dog consumption not your body shape I would never I would never comment on your body shape Evan thank you you milk bag yes I'm round Uh, Josh says, Hey guys, new patron here. Welcome Josh. And thank you for supporting the dub dub club. He says as a fellow bills slash Red Wings fan. Oh, sorry, man. Uh, who happened uh, to be at the DeMar Hamlin game? Uh, what is the scariest thing you've ever
2: witnessed at a sporting event? Oh man. Scariest thing that I've seen live. I once watched a
1: kid go head first into the boards and, you know, when you're, you grow up playing hockey and a lot of times kids get hit from behind or something, but when you're at that age, like you're just kind of made of rubber and most of the times they bounce back. I like, he actually got into the ambulance and went like in the ambulance. Like
0: they, they didn't drop him like Mike Medano, did they? No,
1: no. And in the end, it just ended up being like a neck thing. Like not a broken neck, but like a really bad neck strain or whatever it was, but he
2: was like stretchered. It was a, it was ugly. So I'll make a really long story short at one of my minor hockey games, a kid apparently suffered a concussion during the game, but like didn't go down, finish the game. Nobody knew to the point where immediately after the game in the dressing room, completely forgot everything that just happened when the coach was talking and the coaches realized something was very, very wrong. Horrifying. And they had to rush him to the hospital. Uh, I'd give more details, but the kid was me and I don't remember the game.
1: Well, that explains a lot about, yeah,
2: you. but genuinely waking up the next morning in the hospital, having no memory of the week before was, uh, unsettling.
1: Now, whenever people are like, I've had two concussions in my life, I'm like, I, you, as a hockey player, you get two a season. Like when, when research on concussions really started coming out and they're like, yeah, you shouldn't have, by the time you have your second in your life, like you're at risk for X, Y, and Z, like acute, blah, blah, blah. You're like. I reached that by 12. Yeah. The amount of undiagnosed concussions, like the amount of times as a hockey player, you go home, like, yeah, I'm probably concussed. And you don't go to the, the clinic or the hospital. Cause you're like, you know what, you know, the drill by then.
0: It's
2: not good, but... I was an undersized minor hockey player with a big mouth. I had my share. Oh, I hate when me and Brad are similar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sad Dragon says, Hey, boys, do you think we're starting to overwork Lion? I know he's on fire and Reimer's atrocious, but I feel like if we don't lessen his workload, he's going to fall off hard.
2: Thank God for the All-Star break. Yeah,
1: the All-Star break does a lot. Uh, Lion not playing the first bit of the season helps quite a bit as well. Uh, He's not... He's not young, but he's not old, and so he'll have some more legs to his game, and uh, the answer is still yes. Huso's on his way back, too. They need Huso to be serviceable. They actually need Huso to be above average because as a wildcard team, you do need above average to get in. I think Huso has a chance to do that. He's had quite a bit of time off, so uh, I do think you have a good point there. Give in the Heart says, you can only extend one. Who are you taking between Kane, Sprong, and Bear? Assume two-year extensions. That's tough because Sprong is a lot of people's answers, but...
0: Uh. Everyone I, I I like, but for different answers. Yeah.
2: It it would really depend on what else is happening on the roster. Because if Edvinson comes up and they free up some other defensive spots, I'd say Goss Despair. If the Red Wings are swinging and missing on a lot of forward free agents and... Trades, you have to pick one of Kane or Sprong at that point. I think I'm leaning Kane just because he has that skill set you can't replicate. You know, I don't think there's a lot of defensemen who can do a lot of the things Goss Despair does, but I think you could to a certain degree. You know, player Sprong's a great player, but there's lots of players like him. You could solve that with Frank Vetrano. But... I tend yeah, to agree. Yeah, I think, I think Kane's the biggest unicorn of the group, so I would say him. Which is crazy considering his age. Yeah, Exactly. I think but it,
0: it all depends if they can also attract free agent talent with Patrick Kane being a Red Wing. It yeah. is.
1: That's a really good point.
0: Patrick Kane is one of the best players of all time. People want to play with guys like him. If the Red Wings can market him in that way, then I think by proxy that would make the rest of the team better.
1: All right, uh, Bill Nye the Thigh Guy says, coming off a crazy hot month, do you think this uh, all-star break will break the momentum? Hopefully we can keep this going and give other teams a tight race for the playoffs. Nope, they have no momentum this week, so it's fine. The momentum isn't like, uh, they're, they're not doing what the Edmonton and Oilers are doing, for example.
2: Exactly. Where Edmonton is just speed-bagging teams and, you know, taking their lunch money while they're doing it. Yeah. So, yeah, I think the break will only serve to benefit them. Uh, Bellingham Acid
1: Ball says, Hey, guys, love the podcast, and I'm a new supporter. My not super interesting, exciting question is not about the wings, but about the rules of the crease. What is and is not allowed inside versus outside of the blue paint? Oh, ask a Buffalo Uh, Sabres fan. They'll tell you.
0: Yeah, if we knew the answer, we'd probably be working in hockey ops.
2: So in regards to goaltender interference, which is where this is... Really only applicable because I don't think the crease factors into anything else. If you bump the goalie in the blue paint, it's immediately your fault and the goal will not count more often than not. If the goalie is out of the blue paint and you bump him, now it's up for interpretation and the goalie may take the blame for the contact.
1: And it's so subjective. How many goals were called back because Thomas Holmstrom had a, a reputation? You can, you can make a full like 30 minute montage clip of them. I'm sure. All right. And last one here from Dan Bell says, hello gents. I don't have a PhD in three on three overtime, but how in the world do the wings allow breakaways on two different occasions from simple passes when it seems that they should just be man marking the other team seems simple, but maybe I'm just an idiot. who will never get that time back in my life. Thanks guys.
2: Enjoy the break. Don't get me wrong. That OT was awful and a shining example of why maybe the rules do need to be changed for overtime but man to man coverage is hard. And Ottawa was running a really good system of overlaps and accidental picks to, you know, really screw up the Red Wings man to man coverage because they were very obviously trying to play that. And also, sometimes when you're playing man to man, the man you're covering is just better than you or just faster than you. And you're screwed no matter what you do.
1: Three on three overtime is like, The margins are so tight because if a puck wobbles once or, you know, the pass is off by a little bit, it doesn't just go to one of your other four teammates on the ice. You're you're down two teammates and there's that much open ice. Mistakes are inflated so much. And often when something that's not a mistake at five on five is a breakaway the other way. So, all right. Uh, we're going to wrap up this episode of the winged wheel podcast. We're going to be back with you on Sunday. There's going to be a fun interview for you on that one. Thank you all so much for tuning in as we come into this all-star break. I'd like to thank all of our listeners, new supporters and old and all of our Patreon supporters, uh, and if you want to support the show, uh, in another way besides Patreon, uh, give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple podcasts, et cetera. It really does help. And tell a friend about the show. I'd like to thank all of our name level supporters on Patreon. Arjun Shanker, Yves Bartels on behalf of the Sarah Grant Foundation, Akefur, Samuel Soderholm, Icon, Brad's Lord and Savior, Bradley Cleveland, Glenn Brabham, Croner's Left Knee, Ashley Van Conant, Sea Lion, Matthew M. Rice, Admiral Matt S. Of the Cheesebag Navy, Brad Shin Extension Baggins, Carl Brutin and Carl Provy, Citizen High Five, Clip Clop Nene, Connor Scovey, Daddy Bettman Bucks, Denny's Gamer Girl, Derek Enstam, DJ Denton, Drop the Gloves, Eric Shun. God Creatives, Give Blood, Fight Probert, Hockey Town Love, Hockey Town Matt, Hassam al Jay Gollum, Jacob Turner, Joel Miranda, Jonathan Miller, Kaylin Wood, Marcus, Marlon Winchester, Matt K, Cannon Fodder to the Cheesebag Army, Matt McKay, Michael Edland, R.A., Red Feather Desert Dogs, Ryan Hubbard, Scott Martin, Screen and Lube, Sprong88, The Best, That's What I Appreciates About You, Wallman's Elite Dancing D, Wing Commander Debrinket, Plan, Stan, General Andy Bohan of the Cheesebag Army, Sam Bankson, A.B., Adam Rose, Axel's Sandy Pelica, Bellingham Acid Balls, Big Cheese, Brad Simmons, Brian Vasha, Chuck Buffchest, the Tarpless Goon, Commander Ben Barron of the Cheeseback Space Force, Connor, Connor Leighton, Corey Prida, Darren Fick, D-Boss Snip Show, Derek James, Frank Stanley, Gene Sullivan, Griffey Boy, James Pridemore, Jeremiah Dobo, J.M. Rhapsody, John Evans Derogatory, John Ingalls, Josh Yelton, Kevin McCracken, Quads, Les Grossman's Ungodly Firestorm, Linda Hall, Maximilian, Melissa Erickson, Norris Sider, O'Ophelia, Steven, The Mexinadian, The Hat123, these toasters are unreal. When I'm at the game, nothing hits the spot like a $2 Labatt's brand beer. Labatt's. Literally the only beer we drink. Winging it in San Diego, ex Formerly AA Ron, and your second favorite patron. Thank you all so very much. Go to Brinkit. Go Archie.